A day in Amsterdam begins with me leaving my apartment with my toddler son in my arms, strapping him into his seat between the handlebars of my bicycle, working his blocky little sneakered feet into the footpads, then setting off through the quiet, generally breezy streets of our neighborhood, which is called Oudzout, Old South. You could look at the work of any Dutch master for an idea of the morning light we cycle through. There's a white cleanness to it, a rinsed quality. It's a sober light, without, for example, any of the orange particulate glow you get from the Mediterranean sun. The houses of the neighborhood are three or four-story brick buildings, all constructed in the first two decades of the 20th century, when what was then a vigorously working-class city, one that still smelled of herring and roasting coffee beans, expanded rapidly around its central core of canals. We cycle past street-level apartments, some of which, following a Dutch tradition that I like to think has to do with an ingrained commitment to openness, feature a central, uncurtained window that puts the living room on public display, as if the family who lives there thinks its life is worthy of a museum. For a while I didn't understand why, when we reached the part of the route that has us riding alongside a canal, my son would break out in a series of high screeches. Then I realized Anthony was imitating the gulls that squeal as they do their crazy arcs and dives above the water. We pass a few businesses. The bakery is usually scenting the morning air with cinnamon as we ride by. The display windows of the corner bicycle shop exhibit sturdy, gleaming new models, lately in an array of pastel tones by Gazelle and Batavis, factories that have been turning out Dutch bicycles for a century. An open door to the right of the windows leads down to the basement, and the repair shop, whose interior I know too well. The grooves in the concrete at both sides of the stairway leading below are meant for bicycle tires. Once in a while I'll vary the route and turn down along the Hobomakata, where on our right is a slightly forlorn-looking stretch of canal, with weeds growing up through the quayside where rickety houseboats are moored, and on the left are the remnants of one of the smallest and least noticeable of the city's several red-light districts. The Vala, Amsterdam's central red-light district, is a sort of alternate universe Disneyland, noisy and with a certain ragged cheer, visited not only by drunken male tourists, but also by couples strolling arm-in-arm, and even families. Here, by contrast, there are only three or four of the display windows that the city's licensed prostitutes sit in to exhibit themselves, in the midst of what is otherwise a residential street. I never get how customers would know to find them. Nevertheless, even in the morning, there is often at least one woman on duty, wearing a swimsuit, sitting on a stool, smoking, or listlessly punching the keys of her cell phone. Sometimes she will wave at Anthony and give him a little smile. The other window might be empty, save for a stool with a towel folded on the seat that is crumpled in a way that looks like it has been sat on. Such details, the crumpled towel, the bored look of the woman facing a long day of staring into the street, punctuated by short intervals of sex with strangers, bring the city's infamous tolerance of vice out of the realms of sensationalism and idealism and into the realm of the deeply mundane. As with any other place, living here for a time causes the exotic to collapse under the weight of ordinariness. Two doors down is another storefront business, an advertising agency whose name, Strange Love, you might think is intended as a wry commentary on the neighbors, but I would bet not. I'll bet they don't even notice. Amsterdam School is the name given to the style of architecture that was pioneered in my neighborhood as it was coming into being. The style has a formal aesthetic, which has its technical descriptors and philosophical, socialist underpinnings, 
but to me it simply embodies a reasonably pleasant combination of whimsy and stolidness. Brick, what could be more stolid, is the medium, yet there is an infinity of playful variations, rounded turret-like corners, embedded decoish sculptures that seem to mock the hardness of the material, a girl surrounded by rabbits, a baby holding up a doorway, block-long apartment buildings that could have had an ocean liner as their inspiration, or a wedding cake. The neighborhood is no more than five minutes by bike from the canal belt and the storied 17th-century heart of Amsterdam, but when developers were laying it out a hundred years ago, they must have felt a need to connect the new area to the city's history. If Rembrandt visited the immediate area around my home, he might feel some familiarity. For even though this was swamp and fields in his time, the streets bear the names of many of the artists whom he groomed in his workshop or competed with for commissions. Franz van Mieris, who wrought exquisite small portraits of the wealthy class. Nicolas Maas, who often painted ordinary people at prayer and at meals, and gave the same loving attention to a glistening loaf of bread or an earthen pitcher on a table as he did to the faces of his subjects. Philip Svauermann, who specialized in hunting scenes and was known to paint a mean horse. At the time my neighborhood came into being, all of those were figures of the grand past, so that the names Nicolas Maastrat and Franz van Mierestrat instantly gave the new neighborhood some of the luster of Amsterdam's age of glory when it was, briefly and improbably, the greatest city in the world.